Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. But before we launch into the history, I've got a question for you. How many of you have ever set a trap? All right. How many of you ever set a trap for a mouse? Oh, that's the most common trap we set, isn't it? How many of you ever set a trap for a groundhog? Oh, yeah. How many of you have ever set a trap for one of them pesky moles? How many of you ever set a trap for your brother? Hmm, that one was a little bit more awkward, wasn't it? Have you ever set a trap for your sister? I'm curious. There's one person that raised their hand really boldly, kind of like me, and I'm curious to what, what trap you set. You know, sometimes we set traps for mice, and we've got good reason to set traps for mice, don't we? And we've got good reasons for setting traps for groundhogs. I remember as a kid, we had this pesky groundhog. Oh, my. That groundhog caused so much trouble. It ate up all of our vegetables and our garden. It was just really, really naughty. And we tried everything to get it. And we, instead of actually going and spending money on a proper live trap, we tried everything else. And boy, and we, actually, I, we even tried to electrocute it once. And we tried everything. And then it moved. And it decided to move underneath the garage. And so he dug a hole down under the garage. Now, I'll tell you all this. Don't repeat it. We were determined to get that groundhog. So you know what we did? We poured gasoline down his hole and lit it. <laughs> Not smart. <laughs> Not smart at all. We all got our eyebrows and faces and hands, our hair on our arms all singed off and almost burned the bar garage down. Um, and he survived it. We set traps for different things, for different animals and critters that are nuisance. But I'm going to tell you something. We sure better not be setting traps for people. And you might say, why, why would you set a trap for a person? Like, why would I want to trap them? You might think for fun playing a game. Well, yep, okay, if you're setting a trap for fun playing a game, that, that'd be okay as long as it doesn't hurt them. But, you know, when we talk about setting traps for people, it's either really bad to kidnap them. That's a big thing. It's a terrible thing. That's like on the level of murder in God's book of the law. Um, or we set traps to try to get them in trouble, or traps to ensnare them in doing wrong. Those kind of traps are not good. They're not good. And we need to be very careful of it. In the book of Esther, we find Lord Haman setting a trap. In fact, he built a gallows. Remember? 75 feet tall, almost two and a half times the height of this roof. Because he was going to hang Mordecai on that gallows. Well, in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 5, it says, The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his ways, but the wicked shall fall 
by his own wickedness. Let me set you into a little hint, tell you a little bit ahead of the story. Some of y'all know what happened to Haman. He fell, quite literally. Not just by his own gallows, but by his own wickedness. Beware of setting traps for others and beware of living in wickedness. Living in wickedness and evil and doing what is wrong will cause you to fall. Your own wickedness will cause you to fall. But notice the first part of that verse, the righteous of of the perfect shall direct his ways. When we are walking in the righteousness of Jesus, he will direct our ways. In fact, he will even help us to avoid the snares, the traps of the wicked. And we need to be walking in his ways. It doesn't mean that we won't fall into their traps. Sometimes we do. But especially when it deals with those traps that are set to get us to do wrong, when we are walking in righteousness, and from our New Testament perspective, that's walking in the Spirit, walking in Jesus, he will deliver us from those traps and snares, and we'll be able to spot them. It doesn't mean necessarily that evil men can't trap you and do terrible things to you, but they're not going to trap you in doing wrong. And so we've got two lessons. Don't be setting traps for brothers or sisters or friends or others to get them to do wrong nor to do them harm, but rather always be walking in righteousness in Jesus in the right way that God will give deliverance. It tells us in in Psalm 9, verse 15, that the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made in the net which they had, they hid is their own foot taken. Beware of setting traps. Beware of traps and walk in righteousness. Walk in truth. And so with that, let's go to the book of Esther. We have her, her majesty, Queen Esther, who is disrupted. You remember last week, her uncle Mordecai, or cousin Mordecai, called for her to go before the king. She called for the people to fast for her for three days as she and her maidens would. And then we learned last week she came in before the king. Why was she afraid to go to the king? Does anybody remember why? Anybody? Nobody remembers why? Why? Because her life was at risk. Her life was at risk. Because if he didn't take that golden scepter and extend it out to her, she was a dead queen. And we know the king had some problems with getting rid of queens, didn't he? So, if he didn't extend that golden scepter to her, she was dead. She needed courage to come to the king. But she also needed great wisdom in coming to the king. She didn't just walk right in, and when the king gave her the golden scepter, did she tell him why she was there? Remember, she very wisely invited the king to a banquet Remember that? Oh, and Haman too. Because the plot is that Haman wants all the Jews dead. And Esther is a Jew. 
He especially wants Mordecai dead. And so after that first feast with Esther and the queen, a private feast, he's on his way home, and who does he see? Mordecai. And Mordecai refused to obey the king's commandment and bow to Lord Haman. This makes him furious, and he goes home a crank, but happy that he got invited to this feast. And in that feast, Esther did not give her request. Not because she was a chicken. I don't think it was because she was scared. I think she was maybe scared. But I think that she understood that it's not the time right now. She had discernment. By the way, I think husbands and wives nowadays need to be careful on that same topic. Just because something enters your mind or you need to communicate something doesn't mean that you just blurt it out at your first opportunity, but that you look for the right time when it can be received. I think Esther understood that. And so she waited. She knew tonight's not the night. And so she didn't bring it up. Instead, she invited the king back to a feast the next day. And you remember that night? Haman goes home, thrilled that he's so great, mad at Mordecai, and his wife gives, comes up with the brilliantly evil. Do you know you can have brilliant evil? It's kind of an oxymoron, I know. A brilliantly evil plan of just make a gallows and in the morning go to the king and ask to hang Mordecai on it. And so he does. And so while the king, he's making a gallows, I, I had something hit me this week as I was reading this through. I wonder if all the construction noises for making the gallows was keeping the king awake. <laughs> that would be interesting if it were. It would be interesting. It would be kind of humorous if you think about it. The king couldn't sleep, and so he calls for the, 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 the records to be brought to bore him to sleep. And instead, it just got him fascinated as he re reminded that someone had saved his life, a man named, named what? What was his name? What was his name? Yes, Mordecai. Mordecai. And so the next morning, you remember, Haman comes in, and the king says to Haman, oh, 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 oh Haman, there's a man I want to honor how to do it. You remember Haman gave this really bright idea of how to glory himself. And then the king says, do it to Mordecai. Oh, Haman was furious. But he did it. And he went home sulking and mad. And his wife says to him, if Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. Hmm, I find it interesting the word fall is used again. And it says that while they were yet talking, the king's chamberlains came to hasten to bring Haman unto the banquet, the second one that Esther had prepared. And that's where we're at right now. Hey, go get Haman. And hey, where's his majesty the king? Where's his majesty the king? Oh, here he is. Yeah, you better get ready. This is a fancy banquet for this, this feast that the queen has thrown. And where's the queen? Uh-oh. Oh, there she is. Queen Esther has thrown this feast, this great feast. And looky here, the king comes in. He gets his spot. Look right there in the middle. The queen over here. Hey, Lord Haman, you're over there. Here they are enjoying their feast, right? They're celebrating all of this. Well, I'm not sure what they're celebrating. What are you celebrating, Haman? Yeah, that's about how he feels. <laughs> they're feasting. And it tells us that the king knew 
knew, knew something was going on. And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request, and it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondwomen and bondmen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Who is he, and where is he that does presume in his heart to do so? The adversary and the wicked and wicked is this Haman. Haman was afraid. He doesn't look it, I know, but he was afraid. And the king rose from the banquet of wine in his wrath and went in to the palace garden. Haman's afraid now. He has been exposed. It says that he stood up to make request for his life. He knows he's a dead man. To Esther, the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. And he had come to, to beseech for his life of Esther. And, and he had come and he had even fallen on the bed where Esther was to beseech for his life. Notice she didn't stay. Will he force the queen also before me in thy house? Guards! And take him away. So they took him. They covered his face. That's what they do to dead men. And as the word was coming out of his mouth, Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Hang him thereon! The snare, the trap, the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai, who had done the king good. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. He was settled. Haman is dead. Haman is hung on his gallows, 50 cubits high. Well, some things begin to transpire. It tells us that on that day, His Majesty, the King, King Ahasuerus, he, he gave to Esther the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther, the queen. 
And you know there's someone else who now appears. Esther reveals and tells the king who and what Mordecai is to her. Now, Mordecai, he's this man who is in the king's gate. He holds some kind of a position in the government of King Ahasuerus. And so here now, after the house of Haman is given to Esther, it says Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was unto her. And you know what the king does? The king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it unto Mordecai. He raised Mordecai to the position of prime minister, to the position of second in the kingdom. And in fact, let me see that signet. Really over the kingdom. Because now this guy can speak and seal documents as if he was the king. Just so you know, this guy here I think has some problems of taking responsibility. He always seems to be wanting to get rid of responsibility. No, that's not a good thing. We're given responsibility for reasons, and we have to take and embrace it. I think he has a problem there. He did it to Haman. And, and, and well, here, here's what's intriguing to me. He just up and does it to Mordecai too. I, I wonder what the interview process looked like. Well, you do have a good resume. You saved his life. It's pretty good. But now here, in this very day, Mordecai comes before the king, and the king gives him his signet ring, the one he had taken from Haman. He gives it to Mordecai. And so then the house of Haman had been given to Esther. And when we think of a house, we're not just talking about a property. We're really talking, especially in the consideration of Haman, is an entire company. And it's implied in all the details of as a major company, profitable thing Haman had. And so here now, this is given to Esther. And Esther, she sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. But you know, there is still a problem. Haman's dead. Haman's not going to kill Mordecai. Haman's dead. He's not going to kill any more Jews. Haman's dead. But there still lingers a proclamation. Do you remember it? That all the Jews would be killed on a certain day, almost a year from this time. What's going to happen with that? Well, if you look at verse 3, it says that Esther spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears mischief of Haman the Agagite in his device that he has devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. If it please the king, and if I find favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamandetha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. 
for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him that have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hands upon the Druze. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. And so he grants to Esther permission to do just that. So they begin to work on this decree. They're to write for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet. You see, there's a problem. You are not that powerful. <laughs> and you know it because you admitted it at the end of your statement. Do you see what he said at the end? No man may reverse. There's a law of the Medes and Persians, and I submit to you it's a bad law. They need to change their constitution. Bad law, that no law can be changed. There's a problem with that, because when a law is made that's bad, it needs to change. So here, Haman has made a law that can't be changed. And now the king is saying, well, just make another law. You know what that does to the, oh boy, could you imagine being an attorney in these days? They have to craft a law that counters and undermines and guts the effectiveness of the previous law. It's interesting because in verse 9 it says that then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sithen, on the three and twentieth day thereof. This means that three months have gone by. For three months, all Jews in the kingdom have heard the proclamation that they're dead men. And even after Esther has come to him, it's up to three months that nothing official happens. Why? I don't know. But I have a theory. The laws of the Medes and Persians, with it not being able to be changed, was really complicated, the factor. And they had to be really wise and strategic in how they crafted the law that would counter it. Because they couldn't rescind it. They had to reverse it. So what were they going to do? Anybody here want to be a scribe? Anybody want to be? Makai, you want to come on up here? And you can stand here and act like you're a scribe. Because there is a message that's going to be written to a whole bunch of people. And it tells us that Mordecai is the one who brings this. Hey, Lord Mordecai! I better open the door for him, because he's too great to open it himself. Oh, look, here he is. You're missing something. Hang on. Now he's right. Lord Mordecai shows up. Here he is. And it tells us that the scribes are here and 
Mordecai has a commandment unto all the Jews and to the lieutenants and to the deputies and to the rulers of the provinces which are from India and to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and to every province according to the writing thereof. They've translated it into all the languages and into every people after their language and to the Jews according to their writing in Hebrew and according to their language. And he wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and he sealed up the king's ring and he sent letters by post on horseback and riders and mules camels and young dromedaries, the Pony Express of the Persian Empire, all through the kingdom. And what was this? What was written therein? The king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It is basically exactly the same as Haman's decree, except for the fact that it is self-defense rather than an offensive. It reverses it. And so a copy of this writing for a commandment was given in every province and was published to all people so that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies so the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, they being hastened and pressed by the king's commandment. For the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. In royal apparel, blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced. You know, you're all supposed to be cheering and applauding and yay! Like you do at weddings in the recessional, right? Yay! That's what was going on. Yes, there was excitement. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and every city wheresoever the king's commandment and his decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And many of the people of the land became Jews. For fear of the Jews fell upon them. They wanted to be identified as a Jew, even though they weren't ethnically Jews. I'll give you one part of this. I hope that those people who became Jews became worshipers of the Jews' God. But there's no indication of that. It doesn't say that. But they were identified among the Jews. And so what would happen? What's going to happen here now in nine months? What will happen? Well, there's celebration. They can assemble themselves together. They can band themselves together as armies and as a militia to defend themselves against any who would dare, who would dare to assault them. They have the right to defend themselves. They have the right to kill, to cause to perish, to destroy, to slay all the power, no matter in what province this happens. Anyone who dares to assault them. 
Thank you, guys. You want to go back to your seats? In the few minutes we have left, I think we should talk about a few things. If you write in your Bibles, and I recommend it's a good idea for you to write in your Bibles, I recommend you underline a particular word in, the, in Mordecai's decree. Because I have read Bible storybooks, and I have read commentaries that really criticize hard this decree of Mordecai, and I don't think they read the decree. I recommend that in verse 11 you underline the words would assault. This is an evidence that this proclamation is a proclamation not of vengeful revenge upon people who don't like you, but is a decree of self-defense. It's those who would assault them, those who are coming to attack them. They have the right to defend them. Many people stumble over this decree for another reason. I do. wonder if you have. I'll tell you, people have stumbled over a phrase in this proclamation. For millennium, not just as it relates to the history of Esther, Mordecai, Ahasuerus, Shushan the palace, and the Persian Empire, but an ethical dilemma that occurs repeatedly throughout history. Is there a phrase there you stumble over? Do you see it? Is there something that bothers you in this? Is there certain, something in there that bothers you? Let me read it to you, and you see if there's something else that bothers you in this. Wherein the king granted to the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey, Upon one day in all the province of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. Did anything in that cause your ears to tingle? Anything? Yes. Both little ones and women. My ears tingle at that. To, to slay, to cause to perish both little ones and women? Is that an ethical problem? Not if you keep it to the point of self-defense. Now, I know this is hard for us to imagine, but there have been evidences of history where children have been used, have been manipulated and used sometimes against their will and sometimes because they're deceived and manipulated to attack. Women, too. In fact, in the very part of the world where Sushan the palace is, the Persian Empire, the heart of the Persian Empire, for hundreds of years has had this problem. It's known as Iran. They will set up purposefully offensive and defensive military strongholds in elementary schools and kindergartens, which makes the ethical dilemma complicated, unbelievable. There are occasions in which they will take in young, small children who can even barely walk and put them as suicide, well, they're not even suicide, just use them as weapons, bombers, and march them into a place where no one would would, would do think of, think of striking out against a little one. 
It's a very difficult ethical dilemma. There's a lot of people who have died at the cost of not wanting to defend themselves or even to offensively, proactively defend themselves in a case of this. And so the decree puts it forth there. It's hard. My ears tingle even if I have a legitimate, reasoned answer. My ears still tingle. It's hard. There's another explanation that could be given too, and that is is that there may be a legal reason for it to be in there, considering the complexity of Persian law not being able to be rescinded. That it's possible, if you actually look at the language here, even also in the record of the Hebrew, the parallels are almost, it's, 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 it's written in distinct parallel to Haman's decree because Haman issued the same decree, but in that case as offensive, not defensive. This here is a defensive structure. And it's also here, if you look here, another note here, it says all the power, the word power there can also carry an idea of being armed one who is armed, which is interesting because that same ethical question still continues even to our modern times, that if you're trying to exert and defend yourself in self-defense and one is not armed, it complicates your reasoning for self-defense, doesn't it? Not that you don't have a right in, as a citizen under the laws of America, which is a little different than other places, but, uh, and in Indiana, but you, you have these different aspects where there's always been that question that if there is a one who is armed, the, the rights of self-defense skyrocket. And that's another part that's in play in this. But it's something to ask. It is something that should cause our ears to tingle. When evil is done, when there are problems, when is and how is and what is done in these cases. There's stories of American soldiers who who have lost their lives in different conflicts for the very specific reason that they would not, even in the defense of their own lives, take the life of a child. Others then have struggled with it because the life of the child was still was lost in the midst of, and more lives were lost. And so there's so many very painful and very difficult, and it should cause us to sit up and to take note of just the evil that Haman's plot brought about in the lives of Jews and of people everywhere in the Persian Empire. It's given here implying that people were going to take and manipulate, deceive, or use little ones and women to do great evil. It's a terrible thing. There's another phrase I'd like for us to look at back in verse 4. Your majesty. Do you remember that phrase? It was the last phrase you gave here in verse 4. She says that she would have held her tongue although the enemy could not contravail the king's damage. Since you said it, Esther, what's that mean? That's okay. She says, I don't, I don't know. You know why I say it's okay? Don't worry. Because translators all the way back to the Septuagint and Latin Vulgate have struggled over what does that mean? Bible scholars struggle over what does that mean? In translating it and understanding the meaning of it, 
What is she saying? And you'll see some translations, modern translations, have tried to give an explanation for it. And um, there's, there's basically two different views of it. One of them is, is that she's saying to the king that, you know, if we had just been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, if we had just been sold, I wouldn't bother you about it. And some translations nowadays have updated it to, to reflect that meaning. But it's not really so clear to just update it. It's not quite that clear. Because there's another significance to it, and here we see it. It's a little hard to understand, but there's another meaning or sense that can be gathered from it, and it is this. She says she's confronting the king and Haman. Think back for a moment as to, well, let's look at this here. Who is the enemy in the context? Who is the enemy? None of you know who the enemy is? Who's the enemy? Haman. Haman's the enemy. And she says the Haman, the enemy, could not countervail. Well, what's that mean? Well, that's an old word. It's still a modern word, but it's an old word that means countervalue. Countervalue or the opposite of worth or to compensate the value. To compensate the value. It's a counterworthy. So what is the worthy price of the Jews? Did you know that Haman offered a price as to what the value of the Jews were? Remember that? Back in chapter 3, Haman says, Oh, Lord, majesty, king, there's a certain people, he didn't name them, and if you let me massacre them and do a genocide, then I'll pay you 10,000 talents of silver. Esther, I believe the translation here is correct, is saying to the king, no matter how much Lord Haman, whom she doesn't call Lord Haman, she refers to him as that wicked Haman. No matter how much the enemy, the wicked Haman, tries to pay you for the value of my life and for the value of all of the Jews, it will not countervalue, it will not countervail, it will not compensate you for the damage it will cause you. You catch that? You have authorized a genocide. Did you know that that authorization was a soul-damaging thing to this king? A soul-damaging thing. It was evil. It was wrong. By the way, some have said, oh, well, it was just financial gain. She's comparing the fact of what he'll get in his treasury compared to the loss of the economic contribution of the Jews. They might have a point there. And that probably is true. Actually, I shouldn't say it's probably. Any genocide messes up the economy. Okay? Any genocide does. So, yes, that's true. But I want to say to the king, and I want to say to you and I, what is the damage to our souls, to our hearts? Yes, his economy may be hurt, and it doesn't matter how many 10,000 talents of silver may come in from the Jews and the genocide of the Jews to compensate the economy or to help him or to countervail the damages. The damages upon the king's soul 
were heavy. He was allowing under the authorization of his signet ring a genocide. And I believe that Esther here is not only confronting Haman for the evil that he is doing, but she is also confronting her husband for allowing this for the love of silver to the damage of his own soul. The king's damage. She's saying here right off, I cannot hold my tongue. It's one thing I could if it were for bondmen or whatnot, but this is life and death. And I cannot hold my tongue because this is damage to your soul. This is damage to your kingdom. It needs to be dealt with. What's the worth? What's the worth of this? 10,000 talents of silver doesn't cut it. And so now I bring that to application to us today. What damages come in our pursuit of sin? The way of the transgressor is hard. In fact, in the eternal perspective, the wages, the payment for sin is death, including the second death. And there's no amount of money you could make or steal that would ever compensate for the lake of fire. There are no pleasures of sin that are only for a season that would compensate for the lake of fire. There's nothing. Nothing. Nothing can compensate for the lake of fire. Nothing. And so, what do we do? We need to realize that we are all sinners and confess that we are all sinners, including me, and believe that Jesus died for my sins, was buried, and rose again so that he could save me from my sin. And now, let's look at it from the perspective of a Christian. A moment ago, I just now told you that there's no sin worth the lake of fire. Do you know that? Do you believe it? There's no sin. There's no sinful pleasure. There's no evil. There's no amount of ill-gotten money, stolen money, ill-gotten gain. There's no amount of nothing that is worth the lake of fire. So if you believed on Jesus, you have no worry to fear the lake of fire. He's taken care of it all and forgiven it. And so now you are a Christian. Let me give you a new perspective. There is no sin, there is no pleasure that can countervail the value and worth of the precious blood of Jesus. Nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing that can countervail the precious blood of Jesus. Nothing comes close to comparing it 
So remember that the pleasures of sin are but for a season. And remember that those sins, no matter how pleasurable or hard they were or are, Jesus' blood paid for them. And will we value his blood? A few weeks back, the men sang the song, It's Still the Cross. Do we keep the cross before us to recognize the worth and the value of how much we are, of how much Jesus values me? And so, will I walk and do sin thinking that somehow, oh, the blood of Jesus covers it. The grace of God will abound to it. It will. But God forbid that that's the way we should live. May it never be so. There is nothing that can countervail or compensate the value of the precious blood of Jesus. Let's live in that reality. Let's live in that reality. The enemy, put in that whatever you will. For a moment, may I apply this? Whatever it may be, your enemy, you have one. Even if it's your own flesh. There is no enemy that can countervail your damage those things that will damage you, that have damaged Jesus, they can't compensate for it. They can't countervail it. There's nothing that compares in worth. So let's live walking righteously. Let's live walking righteously back where we were back in Psalm or in Proverbs chapter 11 where it speaks that the righteousness of the perfect the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness the righteousness of the upright shall deliver them but transgressors shall be taken by their own naughtiness when a wicked man dieth his expectation shall perish and the hope of the unjust men perisheth The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Let's walk righteously. That means to walk in the Spirit of God, in the righteousness of Jesus. Let's walk in Jesus every day. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your righteousness that clothes us. We thank you for your righteousness that washes us clean. May we consider how much our transgressions and sins have hurt you. And may we remember it and give thanks. And may it remind us and motivate us to live righteously before you and in you every day. You have given so much for us Lord Jesus, all but we can do is present ourselves to you. That you live your life in us, through us. And that you glorify yourself through us. We give ourselves to you as we pray this in your name.
Amen.